Revelation chapter 1. We're going to begin there this morning. Actually, we're going to stay there this morning. We'll look at a couple other passages, but we're mostly going to be in Revelation chapter 1 this morning. As I was uh, studying this week and writing this out, I think it was Scott Femler who told me somebody at another church preached Revelation, where either one was telling me that they did it in 10 weeks. You told me that? Yeah. So somebody at another church here in town uh, made it through Revelation in 10 weeks, and I absolutely have no idea how you could possibly do that. Um, it, is a, it is a letter that we could literally spend years in. If we just sat on some of the things that are here this morning and just talked about one thing, uh, I think we could go 10 weeks with the different things that are in our passage for this morning, but we're not going to do that. But uh, if it makes you feel any better, was it, I think it was Alyssa told me a long time ago that John MacArthur had been in Luke for 10 years or something like that. He did an ongoing 10-year series in the Gospel of Luke, so that made me feel a lot better about myself that, that uh, I go a little bit longer. But uh, there's just some really good stuff in verses 4 to 8 this morning that I want us to look at, and, and two big ideas that I would throw out at you is one, that there is a culture here in these verses. There's a culture in which uh, God has called us to, to live, and it's where we will thrive if we live in this culture. And, um, and then secondly, there's an identity. We have a lot about identity politics going on around us and just uh, very new ideas sometimes about who we are as people and our identity and, and both culture and identity are spoken about here this morning in this passage. And I hope that you can catch that and understand what's being said to us um, by God through John. So let's begin in verse one and we'll read down through verse eight. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must, be know, that must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, begins with a common phrase. As he addresses this, this group of people, he says, to all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the same way, almost, John addresses his audience here. He communicates very similar sentiments to these people that were in the churches of Ephesus, which to, uh, in modern day would be in Turkey, Western Turkey. There were seven churches in that area. We'll look at those seven churches in a few weeks. 
But John begins here his greeting by saying, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. As I was studying for this, though, I don't know why I had never noticed this before, but as I was studying this and as I was reading verse 4, I, I all of a sudden heard these words very differently. Not audibly, but just in my head. They, they, they were different to me than how Paul writes. Grace and peace. And the reason I heard these words differently this time was because as I read these words and thought about them, I was thinking about what follows in this letter. When Paul in Romans says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is about to write the most phenomenal treatise on the reality of justification by faith in Jesus. It is really good news. It is the most detailed explanation of what God has done through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for us and how we should change as people in relation to what God has done. And so when, <laughs> when Paul writes Romans, grace and peace is just like, well, that's what this whole letter is about. God's gracious work in us, by the way, grace is not a force. You know, the Star Wars, or Star, yeah, Star Wars was made the, I'm sorry that I just dated myself, that I was even confused as to where it came from for a moment, but may the force be with you. And, and I think a lot of Christians think that way of grace. May the grace be with you and God gave you grace, or may you have grace, and all of a sudden something zaps us and we're, we have this experience or we do this. Uh, when you think of the word grace, you should think of it in terms of God's gracious working, not something that he just kind of deposits on your head or in you or somehow like shampoo and conditioner. It is something that God is doing in you. Grace, God's gracious work to you, and peace. And as I particularly stopped on that word peace, I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's pretty strong stuff in light of what is about to follow. The stuff that was coming after that statement as you read through Revelation, the, the images that came to my mind were very violent images. Famines and plagues, massive earthquakes, stars falling from the sky. A third of the earth burned. A third of the waters turned to blood. Locusts with the power of scorpions crawling out of the earth. Just, just meditate on that little truth for a moment. These massive locusts coming out of holes in the ground with the power to sting like scorpions. All, all of that plus more is coming in this letter. Terrifying images if you stop and think about them and, and really imagine what the pictures communicate. And as I thought about all of that, these words took on a new significance to me in light of Revelation. To start out this letter, grace and peace. It's, it's often what Christians don't remember when they come to this letter. As I mentioned last week, some people just are scared out of their mind as they read this and what's going to be happening on the earth. Whether or not they're actual locusts or symbolic of something else, I don't know. But it's supposed to be terrifying. And John says, grace and peace. As we go through this letter, John wants us to understand that as God's children, because he's writing to the seven churches, he's not writing to the mass of humanity, he's writing to the seven churches, he's writing to believers, and he's saying, I want you to be comforted 
by what is about to come. What I'm going to talk about here, I want you to be comforted. There's, it speaks to me of another passage that's coming up in Revelation where John is, is watching this scene where a scroll is presented. And the question is, who is worthy to open the scroll and to read what's written inside? And, and John begins to weep, it says. He begins to sob because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. But that sobbing and that weeping stops when Jesus steps forward and the statement is that there is one worthy to open the scroll. John's, do you know what's in that scroll? Judgment. Judgment is in that scroll. When that scroll is opened, the judgments begin. And John is weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll. Why is he weeping? He's weeping because he was excited that the judgment is about to come and justice is going to rain down from heaven and the, the end of the age is going to come and Jesus is going to reign. And he weeps because there's nobody that can open that scroll, but when Jesus opens the scroll, there's rejoicing because all that God has promised is coming to final results. It's coming to be. And John has the attitude of excitement about what's coming in Revelation because he knows what's the end of that is. Jesus reigning as king. And John, I believe, wants us to begin our journey with grace and peace because the end of the age is coming and Jesus is about to reign. Be excited. Be at peace. Be comforted. But I want you to notice something about these words that's just as important. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And he could have stopped there and he could have inferred that there is grace, graciousness coming from God to us and peace being offered from, from God to us. And he could have just stopped there like Paul does. In fact, this is a very common greeting across the New Testament epistles. I think there's only three of the epistles, three of the letters that don't have a start like this. Almost every letter begins with grace and peace to you from the Lord our God and Jesus Christ in some form. But there's about three. Hebrews doesn't begin this way. Jude doesn't begin this way. And I can't remember the third one. It might be Second Peter. They don't start this way. But John takes it further than even the rest of the New Testament letters because he wants us to know that these words are not simply from his heart to ours. It's not John in emotion welling up in excitement and saying, grace and peace to you, be comforted. He gets really specific here. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. He could have stopped there. Grace and peace to you from God the Father. But he goes further. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. What John offers us is not just emotion or encouragement from a theological mind or a doctrinal reality or even just from God, whoever he may be. John offers grace and peace to us from the God, the only God, the true God, the one who was and is and who is to come and from the Holy Spirit 
and from Jesus Christ. John is the only writer in the whole New Testament who, when he offers a greeting, offers it from the total three persons of the Godhead. He's the only one who includes the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, from God the Holy Spirit, from God the Son, from the Trinity. From every person of the Godhead. It's, it's, a, it's interesting to me and it's somewhat amazing to me that here again at the start of Revelation, which is going to unfold who God is, in his judgment and his justice and his blessing. John wants us to see all three characters of, all three persons of the Godhead. And all three persons of the Godhead are going to be very visible as we go through this letter. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was and is and who is to come. Grace and peace to you from the seven spirits before the throne and grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. All three members of the Godhead. And as I thought about this, this grace and peace, and I thought about what is to come in Revelation, and as, we, as I thought about who this grace and peace is coming from, As we consider Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his glory and an unfolding of his judgment and his victory and the end of the age, we must begin with a mindset rooted in the graciousness and peace of God. If we don't, as this is what John is is laying out for us. He's putting on our shoulders at this moment, putting into our minds his grace and peace from the entire Trinity as you go forward in this letter, as you go forward in the truths of this letter, don't lose sight of the graciousness and peace coming to you from the entire Trinity. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, and to help us understand who God in all of the fullness of the, of the Godhead is, he relays to us specific truths to remember about the members of the Godhead and their relationship to us. Who is God? Who is God the Holy Spirit? Who is God the Son? John is going to give us a brief explanation of all three to carry with us as we consider the future and we journey through this letter. I would suggest to us this morning that it's not just profound truths that John wants us to grasp here. It's not just information that he wants us to put on a three by five card to set by our mirrors so that we'll remember these things about God. What John is offering to us in his offer of grace and peace, and then connecting that to the members of the Trinity is more than information, but rather a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking about God. It's a way of thinking about everyday life. It is a way of thinking about revelation and what's to come. I would use a word that gets used in academic circles a lot, and that is that it is a worldview that we are to embrace. It is a way of looking at our world. It's a way of looking at our life. It is a way of looking at the future that is wrapped up in and founded on who God is and what he is therefore doing. And because it is a worldview, It's not only something that we should embrace, but it's a culture in which we as Christians should live no matter what is happening. And if we embrace this worldview of who God is, we will live in graciousness 
and peace. That's the culture that God wants us to exist in. His gracious work in our lives and people who are at peace with him and with one another. And it's going to cause us to see our world very differently. And it's going to cause us to see the people in our world very differently. And it's going to cause us to see our place in this world very differently. But if we embrace this culture and we begin to think the way God thinks, and we begin to walk in the ways God walks. Because Isaiah 55, that you don't think my thoughts and you don't walk in my ways is not a good thing. It's a bad thing that God is saying through Isaiah to his people. You're not even close to thinking like I think, because my thoughts are far above your thoughts. He's not He's not advancing a transcendental aspect of God that he's far beyond us. He, God is saying to his people, your thoughts are so wicked, you're not even close to the way I think. And your acts are so unrighteous, you're not even close to the way I live. He's condemning them there. But he calls them to walk in his ways and think his thoughts. And that's what John is offering to us here is a way to think and a way to walk in which Christians can flourish and live graciously and with, at peace no matter what is happening around us. This culture, first of all, exists in a reality that God the Father is the eternal one who is, who was, who is and is to come. It's interesting here that John says that in verse 4, and he closes this section in verse 8 by saying again, the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He says it twice in four verses. He wants you to walk away with the reality of this God has always existed. This God exists now, and this God will always exist. We could look at it in a couple of different ways, and there's probably more than just two, but we could look at it as God has eternally existed and always will exist. There's never been a time when God has not existed. And if you want to get yourself really frustrated, you just start spending a lot of time thinking about God never began. There's just a point where you just got to pack that one and say it's true. The Bible says it's true, and I'm going to believe it. He never began. He has always existed. But what about, no, no, he's always existed. You say, I, I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I can really believe that. Well, you explain to me where the universe starts, and you explain to me where the universe ends. We don't even have to talk about it from the spiritual standpoint of a, of a person. We can just talk about how far out into space we can see in any given direction. Well, there's got to be an end to it somewhere. Okay, where is that? Well, I don't know. No, you're going to say there's got to be an end to it. You've got to have an explanation for where it ends and why. Well, just because everything ends. No, maybe not. Well, let me just grant you that it ends somewhere. Then what? What then? Is it like there's a signpost that says, welcome to the end of the universe. We are now beginning universe 2.0. You know, what, what, what then? It, it, the reality is that the idea of a universe that, that goes on and on, and even if it, somehow ended somewhere, something else goes on and on is beyond our comprehension. And just because we can't comprehend it doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge it or believe it. And so when we come to God, John doesn't give us a whole long explanation, and it's not because he wasn't a scientific person because he lived in the dark ages, it's because the Holy Spirit led him to write and state that that God is. Book of Hebrews tells us that we must believe that God exists. 
and that he is a rewarder of those who seek diligently seek him. As we come to the future, as we come to what is yet to be, as we come to the final aspect of human history living under the curse, this will change and the heavens will be rolled up and there will be a new earth and a new heaven, but there will be the same God. He does not change. And because he does not change, his plan is eternal as well. The second way we could look at this is, is maybe John is talking from the standpoint of from the beginning of the creation until the end of this creation. And God does a new creation that God was, that God is, and that God will be. And that he has had a plan for all that was and is and will be. Either way, John wants us to understand that this God who has always been will always be. And everything that we see and everything that is good and pleasant flows from him because he is the only true good one. And everything that we enjoy that is pleasant flows from him. This goodness, and when we see this beauty, we sit back and say, this is beyond any human being. There has to be someone or something greater than us. And John says, it isn't something, it's someone. And God intends for everything to flow from us, from him to us, so that praise may flow back from us to him. But I would say that one of the most important ideas here in this statement that he is the one who was and is and is to come is that because he is eternally existent and because he is uh, unchanging, he is to be our reference point. The way we should think is whenever we look at life, we should look at life through God's lens. That's what Proverbs and Solomon called wisdom. To see our world and what's going on in our world through, God, through the lens of who God is and what he's doing and what he's bringing about. What his purposes are, what his plans are. He is the one who was and is and is to come. His plan is never thwarted. God does not have plan B. He does not have 1.14. He has plan A. And thus, when I look at the world, I need to understand that he is the creator of all that is. He is the sustainer of all that is. And I need to rest in him and be at peace in him as I live my day-to-day -day life. We are to rest in him and his power and protection because he is our only source of hope in every circumstance. Grace and peace from the one who was and is and is to come. This culture also exists in the reality of the fullness of God the Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. In, 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 the, in the letter of Revelation, and I'm not, I'm not a big person on numbers in the Bible. Some people really get hung up on numbers. And, you know, four means this and six means this all the time. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I've, I've seen so many books written that 40 days to this or 40 days of this or, you know, 40 days of fasting because Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 days of this because they were in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 days becomes such an important number. Well, it, it is to a certain degree, but it's not worth getting that excited over. And so we've got to be careful about what they call numerology in the Bible and, and has other forms that are even worse. But 
There is this number in the book of, in the letter of Revelation that is very important and it shows up in the Old Testament as you bring Old Testament prophecies to bear on the letter of Revelation and as they're fulfilled. There is this number that we are to recognize and we're to think of, of seven as completion or perfection or totality or fullness. When John writes to the seven churches that are in Asia, there were more churches in Asia than seven. In, in what is modern day Turkey, there were far more churches than just seven. And these weren't even necessarily the largest churches of Asia. We don't really know. He just gives us to the seven because that communicated to his audience that this was for all the churches. It went out to all the churches, but he ministered specifically in this location. He had been the pastor at Ephesus. Ephesus was one of these seven churches. So this letter is going out to these seven churches, but it's understood to be a letter that is for all the churches. When we come here and in verse four, he says, grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. John is not making an argument that the Holy Spirit is seven people or seven persons. He's saying the fullness of the Spirit that exists before the throne. The Spirit exists in the presence of the Father and in the presence of the Son before the throne as a member of the Godhead. But I also think that John has something more in mind than just the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I think he's borrowing from Isaiah in chapter 11 and a prophecy that Isaiah, that God gives to Isaiah to give to his people. And Isaiah prophesies of one who is coming. And this one who is coming, the Spirit is going to be upon this one. He's speaking of Jesus when he comes and that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God will be upon this one. And he speaks of this Spirit coming to empower the promised one. And in chapter 11, the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. If you were keeping track and counting each one of those, there were seven. There's seven references to the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11 as to how the Holy Spirit is going to be at work in the life of Jesus as Jesus ministers as a human being. And I think John pulls from this here, pulls from Hebrews 11 when he references this because as the Holy Spirit was at work in the life of Jesus, in these seven ways, and as John writes to us, he's communicating to us, what he's simply communicating to us is that the Holy Spirit is, is at work in our lives in the same seven ways. It, he is the Spirit of the Lord. He's at work in us, giving us wisdom, seeing things from God's perspective. The Spirit is at work in us for understanding of God's will and ways. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, giving us counsel, helping us as we think and live and act. He's empowering us as the spirit of might. He is giving us knowledge from God's word so that as we read God's word, something supernatural takes place, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the natural man, the person who is without Christ, who is without the spirit, cannot understand the things of God. He cannot understand the Bible in the way God intended for him to understand it. And that the Spirit supernaturally works in our lives to help us to understand what God is saying. And the Spirit of the fear of the Lord or the Spirit of, the, of, the, of reverence of the Lord. And this same Spirit working in these seven ways is the one whom Jesus promised to send. On the night before his death, as he begins to talk to, the, to these disciples, to the disciples about what was to come and his, his leaving them, I go to prepare a place for you. And they're getting 
very nervous and very anxious as he talks about leaving them. And he's not, they're not understanding he's going to die. But they're getting very upset because they think that he's leaving them and abandoning them. And he says, I want you to be at peace. He says, I want you to be at peace because I am going to send the comforter to you, as we translate it. I am going to send to you the one who's going to come alongside of you to lead you and guide you and teach you in all ways. And he's going to be with you. And he said, it is better for me to go so that you can have the comforter come to you. That's a hard thing to understand at times, but Jesus is saying to his disciples, and he says to us in, the, in those words, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go, and you're not going to see me, but if I don't go, you will never have the experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it's better for me to go where you can't see me, and actually, he's talking about going to die. He's not talking about going to heaven to build new houses for everybody to live in. He's not, a, he's not a property developer and he's not a construction foreman. Jesus, is when he says, I go to prepare a place, he's talking of, I'm going to die on the cross to prepare a place for you in my Father's home. And I have to leave and you're not going to see me, but when I go, the Spirit's going to come. And it's better for you to have the Spirit indwell you than it is for me to be here visibly every moment with you. Because he needed to go to the cross and die. And we need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come to encourage our hearts towards patience in frustrating times and to live within us to empower us to love and obey our Creator. That's what he's doing in us. And the Holy Spirit is in us, making us more like Jesus, helping us to understand God's word and never leaving or forsaking us. You realize that you don't have to ask ever for the Holy Spirit to come and be present with you. We don't need to on Sunday morning say, Spirit, we invite you here. He didn't leave. When you walked in here, the Holy Spirit indwelling you came in with you. I know it's a popular song to sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. He doesn't care in that sense. He's coming whether he wants, whether we want him to or not. And as believers, we want him to come with us because he's in us. He never leaves us. We don't need a new freshening of the spirit in us because he never grows stale. He is God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And God promised that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So grace and peace from the seven spirits before the throne. And this culture of grace and peace is also established in the person and work of God in the Son. We're told that he, Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the ultimate touchstone. He is the ultimate example of faithfulness to the Father's will. If we want to know what our lives should look like, we look at Jesus. I'm a little bit of a hobby horse over the last several months because I read, I read the book Gentle and Lowly. This, this past week, um, Terry was talking to someone and she mentioned that after a church service, she was talking to another lady in the church and the husband walked up to this lady that this other one was talking to, walked up to her and said, this conversation is over, it's time to leave. I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. What Christian husband talks to his wife that way? And she responded by saying, well, just, just, I just need to talk a little bit more. And he said, no, it's ended, let's go. 
That is not gentleness. That is not kindness. That is not respect. And someone has termed it militant masculinity. And I grew up in militant masculinity. And it treats women like dirt, like they haven't got a brain in their head and they couldn't think past the wonder and amazement of what I know. Now, if he had to leave, it could have been, uh, we have that appointment that we need to get to. Are you gonna be ready to go pretty soon? You might be able to say something like that. But militant masculinity, where we all have to run around and show our chest hairs and go ooh, ooh, ooh all the time to, to show our dominance over our women, is not only stupid and disrespectful, it's unbiblical because it is not how Christ lived and acted toward other people, especially women. Okay, I'm going to climb off my hobby horse now for a moment. But John wants us to remember that there is graciousness and peace coming not only from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the ultimate example of how we should live as followers of God the Father. I've said this before, 44 times in the gospel, Jesus says something in the gospels, the four gospels, Jesus says something like, I only do the will of my Father. 40 of those times are in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And 40 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I only do what the Father tells me. I only do my Father's will. The way Jesus acted was based upon a way of thinking, a heart that was alive to the things of God that wanted to display his father to the world so that the writer of Hebrews could say that Jesus was the express image of the father. To see Jesus was to see the father. And we are to live with a mindset and we are to live in a culture that not only rests in the perfection of our father's will and is empowered by the spirit of God, but is also wanting to be like the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. He says more about Jesus than he does about the other two members. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Not that he was the first to rise from the dead, but that he became preeminent in his resurrection from the dead, conquering death and securing life for all who trust in him. So as we read Revelation and as we look forward to what's coming, even if a large fiery brimstone falls on your head. You're good. You're great if you're trusting in Jesus. You're not supposed to read these things with fear, clinging to life, being afraid of dying at any moment. You are to live life to its fullest and enjoy the good things that God the Father has given to you in the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit. And when that brimstone thing and you look up and it's coming down on you, I'm coming, I'm going, and I'm good. I am not promoting that we should all be suicidal. What I am promoting is that none of us should ever fear death because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He is our hope of eternal life. I have come so that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. The life that Jesus promised and the eternal abundance of it that he promised is not something that we get when we die. We have it now when we trust in him. 
He's also the ruler of the kings on earth. Grace and peace to the ruler of the kings on earth. And this morning, that phrase may not jive with your eschatological system because you believe that someday Jesus is going to reign over the kings of earth, but that's in the future. And I'm just going to say to you that the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul, uh, John here, and the angel that revealed this to John because Jesus revealed it to the angel because God revealed it to John, that God, that Holy Spirit, that angel don't give a rip about your eschatological system of the future. Because John says here right now, Jesus reigns over the kings of the earth now, already. Having been the sole recipient of the visions about which John writes, he declares to every reader of this letter since the late first century, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And our Jesus reigns sovereignly over the affairs of humanity, regardless of our ability to understand it or correlate it with how we think God should be or how life should go. Whatever the will that any, whatever the, the will of any human being may concoct, Jesus rules sovereignly. And we are to rest graciously, or rest in the graciousness of our God and be at peace in the will of our God because Jesus reigns sovereign over the affairs of our life. If you are reading the news or listening to the news and getting scared, I'm going to tell you, A, that's exactly what they want, because they want you to depend upon them for their information, for your information because you're scared. And B, if you are scared by the news you hear or you read, then I'm gonna say to you, you have the wrong worldview. Because our God and the Holy Spirit, our God, and the Son of God, Jesus, reign supremely over the affairs of our life and we are to be people who submit to his rule and live in grace and peace and i'm going to say that's hard you know the events of our lives and i deal with anxiety and fear some of it's irrational some of it is uncontrollable actually it just happens but when it happens there are strategies to take and one of those strategies is to come back to the realization that God is in control. And that whatever's happening right now, I need the power of the Holy Spirit to trust that my God, who's eternal and whose plan has never changed, is being completed through the sovereign reign of my Jesus and rest in that reality. <sighs> verses 5 to 7. It is 10.15 and I haven't even touched on verses 5 to 7 and I'm supposed to today. So, so Tim, you're going to have to inform Ellen that I'm backing up all my sermons one week and we'll do verses 5 to 7 next week. She, she has a schedule so she can put it in the newsletter. I would ask you this morning, what's your worldview? Is it dominated is it decreed? Is it accepted as a gift of grace and peace from the one who is, who was, who is, and is, is to come? In the power of the seven spirits before the throne of God and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the king of the rulers of this earth. Is that what's dominating how you look at this world?
Are you fearful of what's happening to this kingdom we live in called the United States of America and you're going berserk and doing everything you can and investing lots of money into making sure that the right person is president or governor or senator? Is that what you're absorbed with? Because your worldview is keeping things the way you want them to be right now? Or is your world that Jesus Christ reigns supreme and that no matter what happens in any authorities, mansion, or building is happening according to the will of God and that my job is to go forth because all authority has been granted to Jesus on heaven and earth and I am to go forth with the message of the gospel to see lives transformed and radically changed. What's your worldview this morning? What culture are you living in? Do you fear death? Why? If you do. It's a win-win. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Let's pray. Father, just this, this reality here just confronts the way I think and the way I live. And while I so badly want to espouse that I trust you, that I believe your plan, that I know what you do is good. I find so many times in my life, I'm worried about this or that. I get worked up over this event or that event. I get scared. I get angry. Father, when we look at your son, when we look at Jesus, we see a man that just was so focused and so driven by doing your will, by being obedient to you, by trusting in you. But even in the garden, when he was in such turmoil, he yielded and said, not my will, but yours be done. God, there are cups we have to drink and they're nothing like the cup that Jesus had to drink. But there are things in our world that are difficult. There are things that we deal with in our own personal lives, in our homes, at work, in relationships that are hard. Help us to come back to the reality of who you are, who the Spirit is, who Jesus is. Help us to live in the current of your graciousness into our lives and to look at life from your perspective and be at peace. Help us to be able to be wise in the choices we make now and help us to have wisdom in the choices that we have to make for the future. But in the meantime, help us to trust you. Help us to live like Jesus. And help us to be able to communicate to others all that we have learned of who you are and what you're doing. In your son's name, amen.